Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strolight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. There's a service called, um, I don't know if it still exists, Lyra Bird AI. I think it was when you got acquired a, a few years ago, but I know that, that that worked in the way that you can just kind of speak as you do, as I am now. You can kind of get a sample of someone else's voice and then just, yeah, basically do a deep fake of them, but but the, the you know, the audio version. I can't claim to be an expert on all the different things going on with AI right now, but I did see a headline just a week or two ago something like there's a tool out there that can produce a pretty believable deep fake of someone's voice just from, uh, it, it was a very short amount of audio. It wasn't one of these things where it's like, Oh, you know, Joe Rogan, we have a thousand hours of his voice. It was like a very short amount and it said it could produce a believable fake. So, uh, we have that to look forward to. Yeah. All of us here who've been on spaces for the past year and a half are fucked. <laughs> It may get to the point where anyone who's been on a space for 10 minutes is fucked. I, th I think that's already, I think you're right, John. I, I think that's already there. Like, you know, if you've spoken in public and it's online, you're fucked. Or it's just going to be mayhem and everyone's just going to like deny anytime a soundbite comes out that's bad. It's going to be like, that's a deep fake. Deep fake. <laughs> that hit me at some point. I remember thinking, the better technology we have, more things getting recorded, it just proves whether something happened or it didn't. But, you know, at some point recently it hit me that I was like, oh, actually it doesn't really work that way because people are just going to say, oh yeah, that video of me, you know, video and audio of me speaking this, this thing, that actually wasn't me. It was a deep fake. And how would an average person be able to know the difference? You Except mean like the guy who, uh, from Novartis? I don't know that one, Peter. What what is what's what happened there? Oh, this guy from Novartis came did a did a um, I don't know if it was a tweet or a vid. Anyways, he was saying that Novartis has been uh, testing mutating um, uh, COVID nineteen, and then uh, a reporter went and tracked him down at a restaurant, and he said, "Oh no, 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 no! I was just doing that to impress a date." So maybe he should have used the AI excuse instead. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, that was Pfizer, I believe. But uh, I, I did see that. And uh, yeah, I, I think people are going to have to, that'll be a last resort <laughs> defense of, no, that wasn't me. I wasn't even there. That's all a deep fake. Um, it will, it'll be more believable of a defense in some situations than others, that's for sure. Yeah, Pfizer, Novartis, you know, what's the difference? <laughs> Surfer Jim, what's up? Hey, good morning, guys. Um, 
you alluded to it, but the deep fakes, the, the video deep fakes are absolutely amazing where you can take somebody else and, and it looks like their lips are moving, you know, an old video of somebody else, you can impose their face on you doing a video. So it looks like it's them doing something off the charts. Incredible. I don't know how you can prove or disprove that stuff in the future, but it is getting sort of dystopian. I'm out there on plenty of videos. Uh, you know, I hope one day I don't become the subject of somebody's desire to screw with me, you know, ruin my life uh, in some way. But boy, it's getting scary out there for sure. I was going to bring up that video that Peter just mentioned because this is big. I mean, first uh, Project Veritas goes and they, they, they put somebody in Pfizer that cozies up to this guy. Obviously, he's gay. And so it's like another guy and they go out on some dates. And, you know, anybody who's watched the first video that was posted yesterday morning was, uh, you know, this guy, I hope I'm hope you're not filming me. And he's all, you know, like it was so natural the way he was nervous about it, but he really wanted to be into this guy he thought he was dating. And the guy started asking him specific questions about Pfizer. And, and you know, this guy wanting to impress his date, not lie to his date, impress his date about how cool and smart and how awesome they all are, and how much money they're making. He admitted it all. So then when Project Veritas went back and confronted him directly, he got friggin' violent. Uh, and the guy, you know, it's pretty funny because in one, and you got to go watch this thing. He's he's claiming how he feels. Um, he he's he's scared. He's in an environment where he's afraid. But then he tells the ho the owner of the restaurant, lock the doors and don't let them leave because I want the cops to come and get them. So he's afraid that they're there, but he doesn't want them to. Leave. It was so absurd and hilarious. You just have to watch it. I mean, the guy is so guilty. It's absurd. And I saw a quick clip by Tucker Carlson last night. Um, reviewing the fact that not a single media outlet, the entire country, not a single media outlet even noticed it, paid any attention. It's getting scrubbed off the Internet. His point was Big Pharma has a lot of power still because this these videos, they're hard to find. Google, you can't find them on a Google search. It's getting really bad out there. All because all because some people control the current monetary systems of the world and they can pay people to push things around and cover things up and screw with the rest of us. And Bitcoin fixes it all. And that's why we're here, folks. Hell yes, Jim. Um, that obviously was a big uh, story in the past 24 hours. I did see both videos myself, the undercover video, as well as the, the post uh, reaction video. It really is nuts. Um, you know, this obviously <laughs> Bitcoin podcast here, but this that was a big story. And we got started talking about deep fakes. So um, I understand how it led into that. But um, yeah, there's just, you know, something crazy about uh, these deep fakes. I think we're going to get to a point where someone's going to come out and say, no, that video that you all saw with your own eyes and ears um, is not real. And the scary thing to me is that the average person will have no way to know. I'm sure there are some video audio forensic experts out there who can look at something and say, oh yeah, this is real, this is fake. But we're just all going to be trusting their word for it. You know, who, who are we going to be able to say, oh, you know, they're right in their forensic audit and, and they're wrong. So it gets pretty scary where you could get people admitting to very, very wild things who work at a pharmaceutical company or even a video of someone just, you know, committing a crime. Maybe they're stealing a car, stealing something from a store. The video comes out and then someone says, no, it's a deep fake. And yeah, like I said, people really won't know the difference. So uh, this AI stuff gets uh, pretty wild.
it's an interesting point because it, it just shows you how you know kind of law and justice are, are going to find it, it difficult to keep pace with technology and in, in the same way that the financial system and, and regulations find it difficult to keep pace with technologies like bitcoin so there is a kind of a, a, a crossover on that topic yeah yeah kind of like a cat and mouse game i mean it reminds me of uh dna tests almost um not to get too far off track here but it's the kind of thing where you think at first like oh this will prove things but then you hear stories about a DNA test uh, actually being overturned at some point. And, and then you just have to say, okay, well, we believed that person when they said the DNA was uh, a match with this person. And then something gets overturned 10 years later because we just believe someone else's analysis. So uh, it's, this is definitely the kind of thing where we are trusting uh, third parties, which Bitcoiners are generally not big fans of. I don't know what the fix is to all this, but uh, it certainly is an interesting topic to chat about. You know, it's interesting uh, talking about gaslighting and, you know, Circle Jim mentioned that, you know, Bitcoin solves all this manipulation problem. Jim Cramer was just on uh, CNBC this morning talking about how the Bitcoin market is manipulated and this, that and the other. And it's funny because the reason it's manipulated is because of fucking CME futures. Yeah, I just, you know what, there may, maybe there is uh, claims to be made about any asset being manipulated. But what I often notice is that people in legacy media, legacy finance, they like to talk about how assets they don't like might be manipulated while completely ignoring, um, as, you know, traditional legacy assets that are manipulated, but they just uh, don't mention that. Um, on that, on a similar vein, I did want to mention this story about El Salvador paying back its debt because I think uh, you made me think of that because um, this is a situation where the media loudly claims that El Salvador might not be able to pay back their debt. They're being irresponsible by investing in Bitcoin. But then you have a situation where El Salvador pays back its debt and then you see the media being pretty quiet about it. You see legacy finance being pretty quiet about it. I can recall a few people on Twitter who uh, have since blocked me because I responded to their posts when El Salvador's bonds were trading, you know, well below par, uh, just objectively. And they just said, you know, this is irresponsible. How could anyone buy this? Blah, blah, blah. And there was one guy I remember responding to him saying, you know, in 2015, 2016, there were energy companies who went down, their bonds went down to 60 cents on the dollar. Investment grade energy companies. I know this because I worked on a team that bought and sold them. And it, it would have been irresponsible to say that the energy companies were, you know, terrible investments and how could they do this? It, it's a commoditized company. Yes, their bonds trade up and down. And by the way, those companies, most of them recovered back to par a few years later. So it's just pretty dishonest cherry picking when people like to say, oh, look at this. El Salvador's bond is trading at this level. Therefore, everything they've done is wrong. Um, so, yes, there, there's a lot of dishonest cherry picking going on out there. Anyone have any other topical news stories that they uh, want to hit? We probably have a little bit longer here before we pivot to BTC sessions at some point. 
Yeah, I wanted to talk a bit about uh, FTX and Genesis bankruptcy, see what folks are thinking, um, any thoughts on that, and what if you are a creditor, let's say you're, if you're a uh, client of FTX or customer or Genesis, um, what you should be doing if people have tips on that or thoughts. It's more a question. I don't think I have too much personally. Um, I don't want to speak, speak out of turn here. Um, I don't really know what individuals can be doing, quite frankly. I, I would imagine a lot of this ends up being out of their hands and left to uh, court proceedings that unfortunately will take years to play out. But uh, if someone else has an additional view would love to hear it. I think if you get in the Wayback Machine and undo it, you'd be probably your best bet. <laughs> Terrence, that, that's the solution right there. Um, that solves that one. That's awesome financial advice. Thank you. I hope everyone acts on that. <laughs> I will say it's been an interesting thing to follow. Um, I think the fact that this Genesis declaring bankruptcy thing is out of the way uh, has provided some form of clarity to, to Bitcoin as an asset in terms of price. Um, I think this kind of dynamic can apply to any financial asset out there that trades at a price. If there is a big overhang and people wonder what's going to happen with X thing, um, then that X thing passes and it's not as bad as people think. In this case, it doesn't seem that there's going to be a bunch of GBT sold, GBTC sold in the market. Um, in this case, it seems like that has been some clarity. That's one of several factors that have uh, helped Bitcoin's price, I believe, uh, maintain this 30 to 40% rally to start the year. One other thing I just wanted to throw out there, um, <clears throat> we'll probably hit on this when we get into macro, but uh, the debt ceiling has obviously been a big discussion. And just for fun, I thought I would throw it into Google and say, how many times has the U.S. raised the debt ceiling? The first response you get is since 1960, Congress has acted 78 separate times to permanently raise, temporarily extend or revise the definition of the debt limit. Uh, so that was a good one. I have a feeling that is going to become 79. So in other words, every year. Uh, that is, that's a good point. That's, <laughs> that's uh, more than the number of years that it's been since 1960, which uh, yeah, there must be some uh, <laughs> actions they took that flew under the radar. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, hey, John, thanks for bringing me up. Uh, I only have a few minutes, thought I'd say a few words and then I'll uh, let you guys go. On the Genesis thing, real quick, uh, no one replied with any possible solution because there really isn't one. Uh, the only one I can think of, and they're not going to do it, is that the creditors of Genesis need to actually demand that the SEC allow uh, Bitcoin Trust uh, grayscale to actually 
give people back the Bitcoin if they're holding GBTC shares, because that would significantly lower uh, number of shares on the open market. It would start to take away the discount, taking uh, GBTC discount back to par, and then it would allow Grayscale, the parent company, to actually start to unload their 70 million shares without a 30, 40% loss, hence uh, redeeming that uh, and paying that money back to the creditors and paying the, the debt, uh, like paying that loan off earlier. Uh, that's actually the only thing that can help, uh, but they're not going to do it. So to clarify, that's a great point, Tone. You're basically saying if you're a GBTC shareholder, now is the time to demand the SEC act, given that Genesis and Grayscale are sister companies commonly owned by uh, DCG and Barry Silbert, and given Genesis is, uh, or is already in, under investigation and in bankruptcy, the GBTC shareholders should be putting pressure on the SEC. Is that basically right? Well, both sides should be putting pressure, right? Let's say you're a Genesis creditor, right? You were never invested in GBTC, but the parent company of Genesis, which is uh, DCG, they're holding 70 million shares of GBTC. Those shares are 40% uh, on a 40% discount because there's just too many shares out there. So demanding that the parent company, uh, DCG, unload uh, GBTC shares now uh, to pay them back the money. Now the parent company is actually losing 40% and they're going to drive that discount further. But if they allow for current GBTC uh, holders to take possession of the Bitcoin that they have in reserve, that will not drop the price of Bitcoin that, and that would uh, at all. And that would not drive GBTC premium or discount any lower, but it will lower the amount of GBTC shares on the open market. Um, and by lowering that amount, you would start to uh, you know, wipe out some of that discount, taking it back to par, hence allowing uh, the parent company DCG to actually sell their GBTC shares later this year at no discount or perhaps even on a one or two percent premium, hence giving the creditors more money back uh, earlier. But again, they're not going to do it. Okay, so so yeah, that, that's really interesting. So if you're a Genesis creditor, you should be pushing the SEC to allow TBTC shareholders to be able to redeem at par withdrawal and kind of convert and then and then later is that right so far? No, no. T -t take possession right. of the Bitcoin in cold storage if they want oh, to. Okay, right, right, right. Okay, got it, got it, got it. That makes sense. That's really smart. And with all... Why right, do you think, I, I, do you yeah. think they won't do it? Why do you think they won't do it? Uh, a couple of reasons. One, it... Um, uh, well, Joe should probably be the person answering this. If Joe wants to come up, Joe Kalasari. Uh, and I wonder what he thinks about this. But they, they won't do it because, like, well, they would be breaking their own regulation that they that the SEC put uh, on the trust itself. And also, I don't think the government is interested in having a window to, like, hand people uh, Bitcoin. You know, it's kind of like uh, mandating uh, that people could redeem their GLD 
uh, ETF for the actual gold and like they, they just sent it in the mail or something. But it, yeah, but it's it's like maybe a one in a million shot, but worth trying, right? If you're a Genesis predator, because there Correct. is cash yeah. there. That's really smart. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, guys, for that. Obviously, GBTC is a big topic for Bitcoin and different people have uh, different interest levels in that. Some people are very directly affected by it. Um, Sir, for Jim, what do you got? Uh, you started this conversation by talking about the Fed and printing money and stuff. And I came across the 1996 video uh, a couple of days back. Uh, I posted a link in the nest. It's called Money Masters. It's a long video, three and a half hours. It's a documentary about the history of money and central banking for about the last 2000 years. Really, really good breakdown of how some of the behind the scenes stuff is actually happening. What I what I took away from it was because it was recorded so long ago, as he described the the, uh, the narrator described what could play out. Uh, we've got you know twenty years, more than twenty years of history since it was made, and a lot of the way he described the future um, playing out has happened. And so it's a very prescient video to watch, even though it's more than twenty years old. I think it's worth it for people who are still trying to digest how the Fed works and how the money all works and all this crap that we've been getting screwed over by these people that control money for centuries now. So I recommend anybody go watch that if you want to put three and a half hours of your time into some education instead of like Star Wars trilogy or something. <laughs> Surfer Jim, I love that you just mentioned that. I actually have seen it. And I will say that I'm a little surprised that it doesn't come up more in the Bitcoin community. Obviously, you know, it was made long before Bitcoin came around, but I think it is something that would be of interest to anyone who's interested in monetary, interested in monetary history and who is a Bitcoiner today. Uh, I will say that, you know, probably over 10 years ago at this point, my dad uh, burned it onto a DVD somehow. This is how long ago it was. And, and he just like made me watch it. And he was like, you have to watch this. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. There's, it goes back to Times of Andrew Jackson, for example, uh, who famously had this thing that he said, he's like, I killed the bank. It goes into that whole saga. Um, another interesting thing that comes to mind, again, it is three and a half hours ish. It's, it's long. But there were some uh, instances where people were heard saying people who were very powerful within the banking industry saying, I will cause a recession, you know, something like that. Um, if, if I don't get what I want and basically they would just pull back credit at the times they wanted to basically manipulating the economy via the banking system, things that are probably not surprising to Bitcoiners, but this guy in the video did a good job, uh, elaborating on these different things. And as Jim said, it goes through long periods of history. So, uh, it's called money masters. I think it's on YouTube would definitely recommend people check it out if they're interested. Uh, real quick, I gotta I gotta run, guys. But I don't know if anyone's seen it. I don't know if you've seen it, John. There was a I gotta get the name of it. There was another documentary. It's at least twenty years old, and it's about how Japan w purposely did what they did after the nineteen eighty nine like bubble that they had, uh, and uh, I basically created their multi decade, uh, you know, like a deflation and all that stuff. 
Uh, it's a very interesting documentary. I just, if I remember the name, I'll shoot it off to you. I don't know if you've seen it. Princes of, of the Yen, maybe? Yes, yes, that one. So I have not seen that one, but I have had several Bitcoiners refer me to it. So that is on my list. Uh, that is another great recommendation. Thanks, Tom. Paul, what do you got? Good morning, guys. I, I just wanted to uh, see, uh, kind of ask the group a question to see uh, if they had any information on this. I listened to Preston Pish podcast yesterday with Lynn Alden and Elise Keeling, or Keeling, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, uh, from Stillmark. And Elise brought up uh, this topic of basically LIBOR starting to evolve, or, you know, it's not exactly LIBOR, obviously, but a lightning base interest rate starting to develop in the marketplace. And she pointed me to amboss.space. And it's showing an average interest rate or yield on a lightning channel of about 3%. So I'm just wondering if anybody in the group has more information on that or can talk to, uh, you know, sort of lightning developing its own sort of base internal interest rate. I don't know about that. Yeah, super interesting. I haven't really thought about that either because uh, I just don't use lightning all that often uh, yet. Uh, but it's cool. All right, guys, I got to run a real quick, quick price update. And uh, we're consolidating here at just at uh, 23K. Now, I still think there's going to be one more push to the upside, maybe come close to 25. Uh, and then I, I think we need a pullback. I think I love consolidations after a quick rise. Uh, they usually lead to a little more upside, but considering how much we want up since 16K all the way here, uh, I think a pullback would actually be a good thing uh, to create a more you know, steady uh, bull market later this year. Just uh, my quick final thoughts on the price before I head off. Cool. Thank you, Tone. Appreciate that and appreciate your other comments. Um, I would say real quick, Paul, I don't have any deep uh, thoughts on, on what you mentioned. Other than I think it is a fascinating topic that needs to be explored further for, for no other reason than what we have called a risk-free rate within finance and portfolio theory for a long time. I think it, it's obvious to at least Bitcoiners that it, it's not truly a risk-free rate. There is no such thing as a 100% risk-free rate, but it's been treated that way. That's obviously government bond yields, specifically U.S. Treasury yields. Uh, they may be, you know, certain types of, of free of certain types of risk, but they're not free of all risks. The big one being debasement risk. So I think it is a worthwhile conversation to talk about uh, different types of risk-free rates out there and this kind of lightning channel operation. Uh, what the what you can earn by by routing lightning payments, I think, is a very interesting thing to be explored as a conceptual risk-free rate going forward. Um, so that's what I have to say there. Um, would love to hear from Tomer for the first time today. And then we'll go to Jim after that. And then we should pivot to our featured guest BTC sessions pretty soon. Tomer? Yeah, I'll, I'll be quick. I think uh, any kind of estimation or anticipation of an expected rate of earnings on Lightning Network is still premature. Uh, there may, there's different, the network is still shaping up and structuring and there's well-connected nodes that route a lot and less well-connected nodes that route less. And there's competition to, among fees that's still very early days and very nascent. 
So I think uh, estimating any kind of mature expected earnings rate on Lightning Network is is just simply that it's it's premature. There's probably some people who are making maybe as much as two percent. There's probably you know it also depends how much you put in your channels, um, and so there's probably people who are making negligible amounts barely to cover the electricity of, of just running a simple node. Uh, so I wouldn't be I wouldn't go into Lightning with the expectation that you're going to earn one percent. I would uh, I use it with the expectation that I'm going to spend Bitcoin and save on fees. And it and getting instant settlement at extremely low fees is the value that I extract personally from Lightning, rather than trying to earn fees. But I do know there are different people with different perspectives and different strategies. Maybe at some point we could have someone who's in Lightning for the earnings uh, come up and explain if they if they wish to what uh, what they're at, what they're doing and how they maximize their earnings. Yeah, yeah, Tomer, you're you're 100 correct. When when I go to amboss.space forward slash magma, you you they sort of disclose a, a wide variety of channels that all have different amounts of liquidity, and the different APRs that they're realizing. And there's some channels right that are or that are earning extraordinary interest rates above uh, even 10 percent. I'm seeing, and others that are near zero. Um, so I, I think you're 100% on the money. It's just a really interesting evolution that's taking place there. Uh, let me chime in here real quick. Uh, I know a lot of people that use Lightning that are involved with uh, companies like Am Amboss. I personally don't know a ton about it, but I, I, ju I just finished listening to that, that same interview uh, with Elise Glean and um, Lynn Alden that Preston Pish did. I just finished it a, an hour ago. And uh, those two women are brilliant. Anybody should go and listen to that interview just for all the other information. They touched on Amboss because Amboss is trying to create um, an interface that allows almost anybody to just get into the Lightning Network and earn fees without having to do, I, I believe, Nessa, anybody who knows more than me can correct me if I'm wrong, but in order to get involved in the Lightning, Lightning Network and set up a lot of channels, there's a lot of maintenance, there's a lot of rebalancing that goes on. You have to be involved. Guys like Alex Bosworth, who probably has the most liquidity in Lightning, he's probably making the most money because he's been doing this for a while. And and it's the guys that are in there that know the, the you know development of the network and, and the protocol that are able to create all this stuff. Um, so I don't know too much more specifics about Amboss, but I have this perception of what could develop over time? As we all know, in order to create a Lightning channel, you have to do an on-chain transaction. There's going to be a point in time where on-chain transactions are going to be very expensive for very large amounts. Uh, I heard somebody discuss it as just the settlement layer for everything above it, um, where only large transactions get combined and settled. And it seems to me that anybody who develops Lightning channels now and can maintain them over time, those could be the type of rails that are equivalent to um, the current, uh, what's a what's a large global network that they settle money on all over the place now? I forget what it's even called. Swift. Swift. Thank you. Yes, because ultimately there might be a point in time where the average person can never open a lightning channel, can never get involved, and where lightning channels become the banking network of the future. And if you own one, you might be passing that channel off to your heirs, and your heirs might be the bankers of the world routing network payments all around and earning fees off of it. So there's a lot to to like dig in regarding this concept. It's got a long way, as Tomer uh, 
uh, mentioned, it's got a long way to go. Most people in Lightning aren't making a dime. Uh, but the concept is awesome, but it's also a little scary in the sense that, you know, like someday only some people ever be able to do it. So it's a, I don't know if I'm thinking too deep about it. I'd love to hear some smart people uh, dig into that concept. And D didn't, you know. didn't Paul, didn't Paul or Matt talk about that a little bit yesterday as, as a potential avenue for um, passing on wealth to the next generation? Am I Am I imagining that? I thought there was something about that yesterday. No, I, maybe maybe you were thinking about uh, the quick discussion we had on fediments. All right, I'm yeah, going to jump in was... here just because we should be pivoting here. Uh, I think we've had a great mix of topics talked about so far. Uh, this whole question of lightning channel and routing payment and things you can get. Uh, uh, what you can earn by doing that uh, is very fascinating. One of the many things to follow in the Bitcoin space and, and see how it plays out in the coming months and years. So uh, good morning and welcome everyone to Cafe Bitcoin. This is your daily live Twitter spaces and podcast for morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. Uh, as you know, Cafe Bitcoin hosted by Swan. If you're thinking to yourself, this guy does not sound like Alex, you're correct. I'm filling in for Alex, and I uh, may be doing so on some Fridays in the future. Uh, but I would like to pivot into our uh, featured guest today, who is none other than Ben with the BTC Sessions. So I'm sure for the vast majority of people listening, BTC Sessions needs no introduction. So I will just briefly say he is truly one of the best resources for anyone looking to learn more about Bitcoin. This could be someone who is brand new to Bitcoin or it could be someone who has been around Bitcoin for years. Uh, either way, you will certainly benefit from taking a look at the many, many video tutorials that Ben has created. And if you want to better understand how to interact with the Bitcoin network yourself and all the various platforms and devices out there, BTC Sessions is an incredible resource. He also has a great weekly show called Why Are We Bullish? Um, with different guests each week. I'll let Ben talk about that a little bit more. And today we're going to be focusing on Ben's latest video, just released, uh, I believe yesterday or the day before, and it is called Nunchuck Bitcoin Inheritance Multisig. So Ben, thanks for being on Cafe Bitcoin today. Yo, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, and and uh, <laughs> I, I, I love the like build up uh, intro. Uh, too kind, but um, yeah, thanks, man. It's it's been a it's been a good week. Uh, sounds like you guys have had. Uh, I was enjoying the conversation before. I almost didn't want you to pivot because because <laughs> I was actually curious about a ton of the stuff. But um, yeah, thanks for having me. For sure, for sure, yeah. I know Alex, you've, you've chatted with him so many times. Alex probably doesn't do that formal of an intro, but I felt like it was necessary uh, given this is my first time hosting with you being on. So it felt warranted. Um, if you have any comments you wanted to make about what we were talking previously, feel free to make those. If you want to jump in to probably better just jump into your video, that is the focus. Um, so, and, and inheritance planning is a topic that tons of Bitcoiners are interested in. And it's so unique because uh, this is something that everyone is interested in, but everyone's situation is going to be slightly different uh, in terms of their own understanding, their heirs understanding exactly what they're trying to accomplish. Um, so the fact that I think you're doing these videos to explain to people, hey, here's a way to accomplish 
uh, an inheritance plan via multi-sig, I think is really valuable for the community. So uh, we would love it if you could give us kind of a summary of what you talked about in that video, um, and we could take it from there. Don't forget jurisdiction in that list, John. <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, so I was actually, I was pretty excited to, to dive into this topic because, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm a fan of, of collaborative multi-sig uh, just in terms of fault tolerance. So, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed what people like Unchained um, and even CASA, I mean, minus their pivot to add ETH. Uh, but you know the idea that you can you can have um, complete control of your money, um, but you can have an entity that holds a key, so that if you screw up, like even monumentally so, and lose the majority of the things you're supposed to protect, you would still in the end be okay because you have this kind of signer of last resort or signer if you're in a pinch. The, the trade-off with that always was, well, you're going to be KYC'd. And so, you know, a lot of people think, um, you know, a lot of people just aren't fans of KYC in general. Um, but some people, you know, they may say, well, that's, that's okay. Like, it's just, it's just them that know. But there's still a risk there in that um, there is a honeypot of information, right? And so, you know, like it's standing outside of the idea of state attack where it's just bitcoin's banned and then the state goes to all of these entities and says uh give us a list of your users and how much they own there's also just again like the, the honey pot of info where if if somebody hacks into that and that database gets leaked like something that happened to ledger where all the all the customers were leaked this type of information it, it would be okay well here's the list of customers and also, we have the XPUBs of, of the multi-sig quorum, which for those unfamiliar, it basically allows anybody to audit the balance. So when you're dealing with one of these multi-sig companies, uh, you know, as, as um, you know, you're, you're typically hedging against, uh, you know, human error and error of yourself losing things. Um, but the privacy aspect is different. So somebody gets a hold of this, you know, this information um, just because it's a honeypot. Well, all of a sudden they know so-and-so who's been heavily KYC'd and we know where they live uh, has a multi-sig quorum for this amount of Bitcoin. And that can be, you know, a scary prospect. Um, well, what Nunchuck has done here is they've made, uh, again, like a service like Casa, like like unchanged, but it's non-KYC. The only thing required um, is a, currently an email address, which can just be a, a dummy email address. But beyond that, they're also working on for this product, being able to sign in with a private key. And in that, there's no indication of who you actually are. So that honeypot does not exist. Um, you don't have to provide any information. You just have to, you know, pay for the service. And they've got kind of two tiers. There's like a two of three. Um, I think it's called Iron Hand. And the one that I covered in the video is called the Honey Badger. And it's, it, I'd say it's most akin to like the high, the high end offering from Casa, like their more expensive offering. And I think Casa does that one. It's quite expensive. It's like, 1800 bucks a month or something, or not a month, sorry, a, a year, 1800 bucks a year. 
Um, and I think uh, the uh, the offering from Nunchuck is like a quarter of that price. So um, I, I can, do you want me to dive into how Nunchuck does it? Like how it functions? Yeah, that was all super helpful background so far. Thank you for that. I think diving into a little bit more of the meat of how this functions would be great. Um, and to the extent you could hit on, uh, maybe this will just come out as you go through it, but what are the prerequisites, so to speak, for someone to be able to set up an inheritance plan with Nunchuck, like the one that you're describing? You know, something along the lines of, hey, you've got to be comfortable with X, Y, Z before you dive into getting this type of inheritance plan set up. Yeah, so, um, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll dive into all, all of that. Uh, so the way that Nunchuck functions is um, it's actually a two of four multisig, and I'll kind of explain the reasoning for that. Um, so when you use the, the top tier product that I'm talking about, effectively you have a um, one, you, you have three devices yourself, um, and one of them is designated specifically as the inheritance key. Um, and I'll explain what that is momentarily and how that functions. But um, in this case, it's the uh, it's it's designated as the tap signer, which is from CoinKite. It's a really simple device to use, basically NFC card that houses a Bitcoin private key. And then there's a way that you can um, you can recover that should the card be destroyed. But um, so you set up a tap signer, which is quite easy to do in, in Nunchuck, and that's your inheritance key. And it's not to be used for day-to-day -day signing. They typically say, set it up, put it away, keep it safe. And then you also write down um, uh, the, the way that recovering um, a, a tap signer works is there is a digital file, uh, which is the key, but it's encrypted. And then on the back of the card, you can write down, there's a decryption key, which is quite robust. Um, and so the inheritance key, what ends up happening with it is uh, Nunchuck holds the encrypted file. And people always get irked by this, but um, <laughs> let, me, let me tell you, uh, it, it, it's not going to be easily decrypted because that, that encryption key is quite robust. You can look into the details on it on the, the TapSigner website. So um, there's uh, Nunchuck hosts that file as part of the, um, uh, the inheritance claim. Uh, and then you have the decryption key as well as um, three identifier words. And so what you give to uh, the, the beneficiary or the trustee who's in charge of who gets the money, um, you give them these three identifier words and the decryption key. So basically three English words and then a string of digits. And um, so I'll explain how that comes into it later, but that's that's one of the keys and it's not to be used for day to day. So one key is a tap signer. The other two keys are totally up to you what you use um, because you're going to have three yourself. So in the video, I used a cold card because obviously. Um, and then the other one I wanted to show just for variety uh, was uh, the Jade, the Blockstream Jade, just because they've been adding some um, AR gapped features. And I thought it might be kind of nice to see how something different functions. So in this video, I used the, the tap signer, the cold card and the Jade, but you can do any iteration. In fact, if you wanted ease of use for somebody that doesn't want to learn 
three different devices. You could just have three tap signers. That's totally fine. Um, and those are, you know, they're cheap and easy to use as well. Uh, so you basically set up the three keys and then Nunchuck has their own key, which they actually have the key for so that they can be the just in case signer. Um, so what it looks like within the wallet is it basically says, here's your keys. And then it's when it's all set up, it says, here's your, here's your honey badger multi-sig setup. And you set a daily spending threshold, um, you know, so whatever that might be, thousand bucks, 50 bucks, doesn't matter. And you, and you can even change that to be weekly or monthly or yearly, whatever you, whatever you please. Um, anything below that, that threshold only requires one of your keys because the nunchuck key will automatically sign and broadcast. Um, so, you know, if you, if you want, are okay with 50 bucks a day and somebody gets a hold of one of your keys and your quorum and all the things that are required to get into that, well, you're only at risk of having $50 moved or whatever your threshold is. Whereas anything above the threshold will require two of your keys and the nunchuck key will not sign for that. Um, so this is fault tolerant in a number of ways, meaning like you could screw up a bunch and still be okay. So you have three keys. The inheritance key shouldn't be used regularly. It's just advice against, so you can keep it off to the side. Um, and then you have two of your own keys. Most of the time, if you're moving small amounts, you just use one of your keys and nunchuck will auto sign on the other side, um, over your threshold. You use both of the main keys that you have um, and and sign that. And if you if you screw up, of course, you've got the backups of those two devices. But if you screw up even more and you lose a device and the backup of that device, then you could defer to your inheritance key as an additional signer. Um, so let's let's talk inheritance then. How does that actually work? It's it's quite simple on from the person that's getting the inheritance because I know what I just said sounds oh geez there's a lot to think about. Somebody getting an inheritance doesn't have to think about that. What they have to know is they have an inheritance that is with nunchuck, um, and you give them two pieces of information, three English words, and a decryption key, which is just a string of digits. So three words and a key, and they just need to know that it's, you know, Nunchuck has a, a, a uh, inheritance for them, which can be triggered by an email. They'll get an email, and I show this in the video, get an email, oh, geez, there's a, an inheritance for you uh, with Nunchuck. Um, all you need to do is download the app, tap on claim inheritance, and then provide the correct information. And so when you get in there, it just says, okay, you tap on claim inheritance, you sign up with an email address or I imagine in the future, a private key, if you so choose. And then you provide the three words you were given and then you type in the, uh, and that those three words, by the way, it's basically a locator. It's like, which, which backup file was yours? Which encrypted file was yours? You provide those words, you get the file in nunchuck yourself. So you, you control it and then you decrypt it with, the key you were given. Okay, now you've got one key. Now Nunchuck has the other key, and Nunchuck has the instructions of when this, uh, uh, when the inheritance is supposed to be triggered, like a date. And so at that point, they will be the other signer that then sweeps the funds 
into the user's the the beneficiary's wallet. And if the beneficiary doesn't have a wallet, it will either help them set up a hot wallet in Nunchuck, or there's a sweep function where you can sweep it to any other wallet you already have set up in Nunchuck. Or if you don't want to use Nunchuck, there's a sweep function that sweeps your inheritance into um, a uh, an address of your choosing. So anything external, you could scan a QR code, whatever you want. So in terms of, yeah, the person getting the inheritance, it's literally, you get an email, you take the stuff that you were given, like literally just a, a few words and, and a, a string of digits, you plug them in, and then you sweep it to whatever wallet you want. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the general, I know that I, I rambled for a lot, but like the, I think the, the stuff in the background is the important part. Um, and through this entire process, neither the person setting up the, uh, the inheritance plan nor the person receiving the inheritance plan has to give away any personal information. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. So much helpful information. I think it's great for people to be hearing it in this context here. And then obviously, as we mentioned at the beginning, for anyone who wants all of the detail, there is an hour and a half video that Ben did on everything that we're talking about here. I just want to highlight two things um, that I think are really clever uh, things that, that Nunchuck has done here. One being the threshold where amounts under the threshold will be signed automatically. Uh, by Nunchuck's key. I think that's just very clever and very helpful to not make this something where people say, oh, I have this set up and it's really secure, but it's actually annoying for me to send uh, certain amounts. So I think they came up with a very clever solution there. And then Ben, you hit on one of the key questions um, we wanted to go into, which is, okay, what does someone's heirs need to know in order to actually claim their inheritance when the time comes. And I think this is what people get concerned with because they're saying, okay, what if I'll do all the work to set this up and make sure it's secure, that's one thing, but do my heirs need to know everything that I went through? And then that becomes more difficult. So what, what Nunchuck has done here is made it a lot more simple. And this is what Ben just went through. Uh, an heir just needs to know three English words and a decryption key. And yes, there's a process that they have to, to use those things in order to recover it, but it's not the type of situation where your heirs need to know every single thing that you did in order to set it up. Uh, the process has been simplified for them. Yes, they do have to know something about Bitcoin. Um, I don't know if there's a way around that. They have to have some idea of how to send and receive Bitcoin, but that, that I, don't, I don't think there's a way around that. Um, let's go to uh, Noodle. Would you like to chime in here? Yeah, cheers, John. Um, hi, Ben. The um, the video yesterday was brilliant. I, I took a look at it. Really good. So thank you for that. Um, and apologies, you, you may ha have mentioned this on your, on your video, but I just wanted to, for the benefit of others too. Um, if Nunchuck just completely disappear and, you know, you, you, you've given them the $450 for the year, et cetera, and then one day they just completely disappear, what is the process to um, to recover the funds on, you know, let's say you, you, you use something like Spectre Wallet or something like that? Is it relatively straightforward for the person that's setting this all up? Not, not well, I suppose the question can extend to, to the beneficiaries of the inheritance as well, but... Just for, for for someone that wants to take out their service, 
if nunchuck were to yeah disappear how, how simple would it be um you know to 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 recover the funds on, on something like Spectre or, or, or another piece of software. Yeah, yeah. So um, this the setup itself, um, as the person who sets up the actual inheritance plan, um, you can port it out to any other wallet capable multi-sig, right? So when you when you initially set it up, and you know it's hard to hard to cover all this in a in a quick conversation but um yeah you you export a file it's called the bsms file basically the it's all of the information um it's it's you can kind of consider it like the map to your money which is common among all multi-sig setups you have a file that says this is where the vault exists so that you can use keys to unlock it and it has all the information about how many keys you need and so on and so forth so with that file you can port that over to whatever it could be you know, Sparrow, Spectre, you know, whatever, whatever um, is capable of handling a multi-sig setup. Um, at that point, you have enough keys to move the funds on independent of Nunchuck, right? Nunchuck only has a single key and they're, they're kind of like a just-in-case signer and a inheritance signer when push comes to shove. Um, and so you have three keys yourself. You only need two of them. And, and, you know, if you're being prudent, you have three keys and a backup of each key, right? Like you have a, a seed phrase, you know, hopefully in metal or something like that to hedge against fires and all that. But nonetheless, yeah, you take that file, you plug it into Sparrow or Spectre or another multi-sig wallet, and then you just use the existing keys you have to move the funds wherever you see fit. So um, you have everything you need to move it. Uh, same Same goes for, you know, you know, like Unchained, for instance, you down you can download your file, and then you know in the in a, a non-changed two of three, as long as you have that file, you plug it into Sparrow or Spectre, and you have two of the keys and backups for them. Well, Unchained just has one; they can't move it by themselves, and you have enough credentials to move it by yourself. So, same thing applies here. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that answers the question decently. Yeah, bang on. That, that that was absolutely perfect. I'm going to be really, really cheeky as well. I know, I know Jim and, and Peter have got a question, but just just as one more, because you you hit on the KYC thing, and you know there was a, there was a space yesterday, and it was one of my concerns with you know uh, the, the biggest concern of KYC being that you know um, companies can you know get hacked, etc. Third party companies can get hacked, etc. Is a company like Nunchuck, we, you know, I suppose this is more an opinion than, than anything else, but 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 are they at risk of, of potentially getting collared by regulators at you know a, a later date and then forcing KYC on on you know users that signed up, um, forcing it at a later stage? I suppose it's more of a kind of a, an opinion of yours. What your thoughts on that, really? Yeah, I mean, regulatory wise, anything's possible, but at the same time, there's a difference from uh, doing it early on and then you're just stuck because then regulations turn on you and you, you know, they're, they have your information and are required to give it over, um, versus, Hey, we have a single key of yours. Regulators are now breathing down our neck, demanding all your information and demanding we shotgun KYC. Luckily you have all of your keys and here's how you move your funds. If you don't want to do that. Um, I think, yeah, it, it's just a totally different bulb game. Also, uh, those that are listening that uh, are unfamiliar with Nunchuck or, or maybe hadn't quite heard the name, 
just to give an idea what kind of a company this is, um, they this was the wallet that I used as a like a collaborative multi-sig during the trucker protest. And um, the Canadian government reached out and uh, basically said, we need, <laughs> we need, because they knew that we were using Nunchuck for the multi-sig, they reached out to Nunchuck and said, hey, we need, uh, we need to know the information of, of what's happening with your users. And they responded with a letter that basically told the Canadian government to go fuck themselves and that they don't retain any of their user data, nor, and that's by design. And then on top of that, uh, they said that, uh, <laughs> I think they ended the letter with, um, when the Canadian dollar goes to zero, we will be here to serve you too. So if that if that gives you like a, some context into and also Ted Cruz read this letter aloud at CPAC. So so if it gives you an idea of the quality of people that are working on this thing, I feel like even if that came down, they'd sooner burn the company to the ground than, you know, comply. That's my opinion, though. I'm glad that came up. And thank you for reminding us of that awesome sequence of events that played out. Uh, I believe Peter had his hand up. Let's go to Peter and then Jim. So <clears throat> I'm a, let, let me give you a little perspective. I'm a boomer. Um, I, I don't know that I like multi-sig. I don't know that I dislike it um, in general. I, I believe personally that, um, you know, at some point human trust has to come into play when dealing with inheritance issues, particularly um, if you are trying to practice uh, tax avoidance in a particular jurisdiction. And the people that um, I, you know, have that trust with are people who are already dealing with uh, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, sometimes even billions of dollars, and they're doing it without any uh, kind of issue concerning their own um, uh, legitimacy, their own ability for me to trust them. So that said, that means that I have, and you can correct me anytime if I'm wrong, but that means that I have this one moving part that I have to deal with, which is trust. And that's a big deal, but you know, it's something that we've done with humanity for a long time. Um, and we've seemed to come to some kind of social consensus on how this thing can work in general. And I think it works pretty well in general. Um, uh, so with the, what you're talking about here, it seems like to me, like there's a lot of moving parts. And the one that sticks out to me is, hey, you'll be notified by email. And, and that just seems like, wow, do you know how many emails I get that, that I don't get because they've gone into a junk file or I don't have that email anymore or I've done the wrong, you know, I've, I've entered a space into an email. And there's, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong with just that one piece of what we're talking about here. So I'm curious, Ben, from your perspective, what is the moving part toward you in this process that sticks out as being potentially the most problematic? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the email thing is is just an option within the setup, right? It's, it just says, hey, do you want them to be notified by email? Um, and so uh, I should have clarified when you initially set it up, it says, hey, how do you how would you like to go about your inheritance planning? Is it direct to the beneficiary 
is the information split between a trustee and the beneficiary, meaning the trustee would get the identifier words, perhaps, and the beneficiary gets the decryption key or vice versa? Or do you want both of those things in the hands of the trustee, um, like a lawyer or whatever, and then they then reach out to uh, the beneficiary at the designated date? Um, I would say don't rely just on the email to notify your next of kin that they're part of a, an inheritance plan. Um, I would, you know, I would provide them with the necessary bits of information that you have in some sort of a, a package um, and maybe have, you know, some redundancy to that, have like a backup in your home just in case labeled for so-and-so. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would, I would let them know um, that, Hey, there's, there's something for you. And then just have maybe you can even just write like, you know, uh, go to, go to nunchuck dot io or whatever um to to claim an inheritance or something like that um so you know there's there's a degree of like yes you you know you use the email thing great that's like a, an extra thing to let people know let the trustee know if there's a trustee involved hey on this date if i'm not around you need to reach out to people there's also thresholds you can set you can change the um the inheritance date and you can continue to change that and so the best i'd say the best um way to do that because you asked okay moving part what what could go wrong i would say and and they do help in advising with this in terms of what best practices are but you don't want to set the inheritance date some date way late in the future because if you set it to that um and then and you can change it at any point if you're alive, but if something happens to you, then and you you weren't planning on being dead so soon, uh, well then your family, unless they know how to access your other keys, um, then they could be waiting a decade, two decades after you pass um, with no access to the money. So I I'd say the better option is setting a an inheritance date that's like a year or two out, and then you continue. Um, to update that as it gets like, you know, a couple months out from that date, you just go in and you adjust it another two years forward. And so then you don't have family that are waiting on inheritance if something goes awry. Um, also, again, the moving part is, is the safety of the information you've bestowed upon the individual, right? And so I think with that, it's, it's you know, being a responsible adult. I mean, if, if you're a responsible adult and you're setting up an inheritance plan, then I would say it's worth taking that extra step of being responsible and calling that person once per year and saying, do you still have that package I gave you? Double check. And like, not just, you know, they say, oh yeah, it's upstairs. No, 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 no. Go upstairs right now. Look in the place where you put it and make sure it's still there. And so just having like a yearly reminder in your calendar, like, oh, call, call Joe, make sure that he's still got his inheritance sitting there. Um, and just keep that in the back of their mind. If you place importance on it and you take the time every year to say, is that still there? Double check. Um, then they will place importance on it. So that's that's kind of the thing that stands out the most to me. Um, I like the redundancy of you having, it, it's, it's effectively a two of three multi-sig, but it's because the inheritance key is not meant to be used day to day, but can be used in a pinch. Um, 
And I, I think having that inheritance key there as a separate thing is also some additional redundancy where, you know, you could, you could have that just, just in case there's enough redundancy there that I, I'm, I, you know, I don't think it would be too difficult uh, to just use that key as well. But uh, so quick, quick follow up, Ben. Um, yeah. What happens if somebody becomes incapacitated, but they're not, they're not dead. I mean, then, then inheritance becomes something you don't want to do um, in a lot of jurisdictions because it's no longer considered a, an inheritance, but you don't have the ability to change that date anymore. I mean, you know, do you see what I'm trying to get at here? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is where you could utilize a trustee, right? So you have the information with the trustee and you say, okay, in, you know, after this threshold date that I've hit, if I'm incapacitated, it does not pass. You do not give the information because it doesn't just auto trigger and like send off the money, right? It's still sitting there. It needs to be claimed. And so that's where the trustee, given the situation, could say, well, per the wishes of this individual, I'm not supposed to give you this information. And they don't even need to know what that information is, right? Like you give three English words to a lawyer, they have no idea what they're looking at or what it's involved in. So um, it still keeps it anonymous in terms of, oh, this is to do with Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, I'd say like, if that's a worry, then a trustee for at least part of the information is important. Um, and then you, you lay out what are the circumstances in which that information gets given to the beneficiary, I would say. This is great. Um, before we go to Jim, I just want to say I'm glad a lot of these topics are coming up. And I think it highlights the fact that everyone's situation is going to be different. If your goal is to pass on your Bitcoin to your beneficiaries when you pass, then I think it is really important to do this rolling period of every one to two years, check that time lock and see if it's, you know, and just, just keep moving it forward. If your goal is to say, I want to pass on my Bitcoin to, you know, this family member when they turn a certain age, then maybe you can just do set the time lock for a certain point in time and you don't need to keep uh, returning to it. So everyone's situation is going to be a little bit different. Um, and these are really important considerations. Jim, let's go to you. Hey, thanks, John. Um, I, it's odd that I find myself in two days in a row in inheritance discussions. Yesterday's uh, Cafe Bitcoin was really good. And then uh, Toxic Happy Hour yesterday, we got into it for a couple hours. And the um, a, a new paper, a research paper that was written recently by James O'Byrne, uh, discussing something he calls Op Vault, which would be an op return in the Bitcoin base layer protocol, which would be a soft fork. So it's years out if it was ever to get adopted kind of addresses everything that this nunchuck setup addresses. And I wouldn't expect Ben to necessarily know differences or similarities. Uh, I certainly don't know enough of the details, but I find it interesting that a lot of people are working on inheritance, understanding the importance of it. Um, and I went to New York City BitDevs last night, which is incredible as far as the technical knowledge of the people there. And this was literally one of their topics. So I, I went there like excited as could be because I spent all day yesterday talking about it. And now here I am again today. And so the original way to, you know, set up money for out into the future is uh, by a time lock, but that cannot be undone. And so this nunchuck thing sounds like it could, as well as James O'Byrne's 
uh, idea of this op vault thing where you lock up money in a vault, but there is the ability to release it, you know, ahead of time, change it, but it also works as an inheritance uh, way for Bitcoin to get distributed someday. I guess my my question to Ben is if you do know anything about it, if you if you're aware of any similarities or differences and can ex, um, explain that to the people listening. But I simply just wanted to bring it up that this is a thing uh, as, no matter how much Bitcoin you have now, it could be worth a huge amount of money in the future. And inheritance is super important in general. But within the Bitcoin protocol, your inheritance does not need to go through the state, through wills and trusts necessarily because the Bitcoin protocol allows for transfer outside of, you know, it's peer to peer. It doesn't, you don't need a third party to decide who gets the stuff if it's set up correctly. So inheritance planning is important. And I just, I'm happy to see smart people working on it for all of our benefits. So again, again, back to Ben, if there's anything you're, you're familiar with regarding the similarities and differences, I'd love to hear your opinion. You got a lot more knowledge about this stuff than me. So thank you very much for being here and explaining all that. One more option for me to consider I didn't even know about. So thank you very much. Yeah, man. Good to, good to chat with you. And uh, it's cool that you, you've been chatting about this the past couple of days. Um, specifically the, um, I can't remember what you called it, the the vault lock or whatever it is off vault lock um uh what was it called op vault it's a it would be a new op code and it would require a soft fork but it's very interesting the guys that did those last night said it had a lot of great features and they were all excited about it but it's it's any soft fork is years out so yeah yeah interesting okay so i mean yeah um i can imagine that you know stuff like that would be super useful obviously then you have to change the protocol and so we'll see like wh what kind of um you know what what actually comes down the pipe when the time comes but um you know the idea of time locks yeah absolutely the, the the you can you can enforce it at a protocol layer but that's it can't be just undone right um and so uh actually interesting blockstream does this with uh with their blockstream green when you use the multi-sig shield so the way that blockstream green works um, if you choose to use it, is that it's actually a two of two multi-sig um, and one key is yours and the other key sits on Blockstream servers. And so every time you actually send a transaction, you're sending, you're signing with the key in your hot wallet, but then Blockstream also has a key on their server and you have to do like a two factor in order to, for them to then sign the, the transaction. So whether that be Google Authenticator or Authy, or you get an email or you get a text message or whatever, you have a special code you put in and that unlocks the ability to spend, AKA it proves to them that they can sign with their key. Now, the way that works though, is it is on a time lock. Uh, and I'm trying to recall, um, it's two of two multi-sig until uh, a year from the last spend. Um, and so I think the way I think the way it functions is uh, obviously the assumption is, well, hey, if what happens if Blockstream disappears? And so that's what they're hedging for is, OK, well, it's two of two. It'll require the signature from our, our side as well. But a year out from your last uh, expenditure, from your last on-chain transaction, it becomes a one of two multi-sig in which only your key can sign and the blockstream key cannot. Um, so yeah, there's lots of interesting things you can do with multi-sig and time locks. And in this instance, yeah, it's a, it's a time lock where 
the, you know, the single key, your single key only works a year into the future. So yeah, yeah, I love that kind of stuff. That's great. Um, ben, can I just, I must be, uh, have misunderstood something. <clears throat> I thought I heard conflicting things about you can change the time lock or you cannot change the time lock. Can you just clarify yeah. that? So, so uh, yeah, I should clarify that. Um, the, what Nunchuck is doing is not a, an on-chain time lock with the inheritance key, right? Because the, the, the setup is literally just a two of four multi-sig across the board. What happens is they have their own lock, like internal lock on when they can actually release the, uh, the, the encrypted file back to the beneficiary or trustee, right? And so um, when that time expires, well, then, then they'll, they'll give that up. Now, they did say that they, they are looking at incorporating the option to do that actually on-chain as a time lock. However, and, and what that would do would mean the tap signer is no longer even in a pinch an option to sign until that date. Um, uh, but the problem right now is interoperability. You need like, yeah, they can incorporate it and allow that, that feature to be functioning on, in their ecosystem. But when it comes to cross compatibility, with things like Sparrow and Spectre and all these other multi-sig solutions, um, the time lock function is not really ubiquitous amongst Bitcoin wallets, right? Like you don't have that feature everywhere. And so their main concern is, well, if we incorporate this and it's actually on-chain time locks that govern the, the inheritance key, well, what happens if we don't exist? Then it becomes a massive pain in the ass if you do want to, and and also you can't, you just can't change it backwards like you can right now. So the trade-off is either Nunchuck dictates, and well, you through Nunchuck dictate the conditions under which the uh, inheritance key is bestowed upon the beneficiary, um, and, and then you have the ability to move backwards. So if you accidentally set it 10 years in the future and you're like, geez, that's, that's a long time. If something happens, maybe I'll change it to two years in the future. That allows you to move backwards like that if you need to. And there's security measures to allow you to do that um, in a safe way. But uh, if, if it's just time locked on chain, then you can set a date. And then the only thing you can change is moving it further out, really. Um, so yeah, yeah. So Nunchuck is not doing on-chain time locks for the inheritance key, uh, mostly because of compatibility, but they're kind of, they're kind of listening for people's thoughts on like, you know, what, what do you want? And then that's what they're going to be working towards. They, they can do it, but it's like, is the worry of cross compatibility and, and not being able to pull that date backwards, uh, too great. Got it. Thank yeah. Thank you for distinguishing between Nunchuck's internal time lock versus an on-chain time lock. Um, I think we're we're going to stay on this topic, which I think is a, a super interesting and important one for another five, maybe ten minutes before we pivot into macro. So let's go to Wicked uh, and then Paul. Cool. Um, I didn't really have a, a question so much as just a comment. You know, I I um, 
for my fiat job, I'm going to start traveling a lot more. So, I've, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, like I should probably set up some inheritance stuff, you know, just in case something bad happens to me, right? Uh, so my wife knows what to do with the Bitcoin. And like one thing I started doing is just, you know, literally writing out instructions, right, which I'll throw in the safe, um, you know, how to how to recover the funds in case anything ever happens. I started writing those instructions out and dude, like fucking three pages later, I'm just like, oh my God, <laughs> this is so crazy. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like 20 steps. I was like, oh Jesus. But you know, I mean, like, this is kind of like, this is, this is, these are the types of things where like, you realize like, man, when, when they say like, we're still early, like we definitely are, you know, the fact that you have to like, really have so much knowledge about Bitcoin to to kind of know how to use it. I mean like use it, you know, in a in a in a way where you actually know what you're doing. Like anyone can send Bitcoin on like fucking Cash App or, you know, open up a QR code on Lightning. But like, you know, really knowing how to like recover funds and all that kind of stuff takes a lot of knowledge. So it's it's good to know that there's you know, they're developing tools like this and then also like Jim was saying, you know, thinking about ways to incorporate other um uh, you know, uh, capabilities with, with softworks and stuff. So looking forward to the future. And, and I guess for now, I'll just stick with my fucking three-page, you know, 20-step uh, handwritten note. Hopefully she'll be able to figure it out. Yeah, this is exactly why I, I think it's, it's good that people are working on this stuff. But yeah, I mean, any Bitcoiner that <laughs> has gone into the weeds and has started putting together, uh, you know, a degree of a safe, you know, some a place for safekeeping other Bitcoin is going to encounter the same thing when they try to describe what the hell to do um, to their, to their family. I mean, and again, like to, to the credit of like Unchained and Cass and people like that, um, you know, that's an instance where it's like, you know, in the traditional sense of things, um, somebody could go with, proof that they're next of kin and literally like just a single piece of the puzzle like one of the keys they just have a device or they just have like a seed phrase and they can go to those companies and be like hey here's proof who i am uh what do i do you know um so there's a degree of that um and and so the, yeah the the trade-off is just kind of in like how how difficult do you make it i guess um i mean nunchuck does have like they have support like in-app support and chat and stuff like that. So that's, that's helpful too. But um, yeah, everybody's going to have something a little bit different. Uh, the, the other thing I like about the nunchuck thing is um, I, it, again, if people aren't familiar, you can just use it yourself, right? Like th this is just like a thing that is an option within their already awesome wallet. Like you can, you can use nunchuck uh, alongside everything I just discussed you can just use it as a hot wallet. Like you can just create keys in the app and use it as a single sig hot wallet. You can manage hardware so you can manage your cold devices in it directly. And then you can also create your own independent multi-sig vaults in the app as well. So if you just want to do it yourself for free, you just download the app and you manage your own multi-sig. That's totally fine too. And you can import that from anywhere. You can export it to anywhere. The, the thing that I've been discussing is just, it's just their product that they offer as like a, oh shit, I need a plan uh, kind of thing. But yeah, no, there's, there's so much and it can get very complicated very quickly. 
Yeah, Wicked, the good thing is you don't even have to put that in a safe because if someone sees it, they're going to say, screw this. This is not worth it. I'm not going through all these steps. Um, I'm kidding. Well, do not, my, do not my, rely my, on doing that. My wife might because, you know, it's all our money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would make sense. Um, let's go to Paul, and then we're going to go to any closing comments that Ben wants to hit on. Ben, thanks for taking the time to uh, educate us on this. I had a, I want to go back to the time lock because I want to make sure, uh, as a non-technical person, I understand. Um, and I want to frame the question in, in more of a traditional inheritance uh, framework to see if I'm getting it. Um, so if, if I had this uh, set up in Nunchuck and I said, okay, uh, you know, I'm going to be a, a, in 50 years, I'll be 102 years old. I'm surely to be dead by then. And that's, that's, that's my time lock. But then I get hit by a bus tomorrow. If I had uh, a key or I had the three words given to my trustee and I had the uh, decryption key with my beneficiary, could they go to Nunchuck and say, hey, Paul's dead, uh, we can prove he's dead, we have a death certificate, and we need to eliminate the time lock and get access to the funds now? Is that a possibility at all? No, and, and the reason I say no is because the person who, who set it up, like if you set it up and you said, this is the date that I want these released, then you like they interpret that as you've designated a date. That is when that information can be released to the beneficiary. However, keep in mind, there's still other keys, right? So, so there is an actual tap signer sitting somewhere. That's, that's an inheritance key. However, it's not, it can't be used um, to claim an entire balance. Uh, it can be used as part of, uh, as part of a under the threshold um, movement. So like you have your daily or monthly or whatever, uh, access. So, um, while they couldn't get access just via the words and the decryption key, if they had the tap signer, then they could use that as a single signer and then use the nunchuck app and, and they'd, they'd have to be able to like get to the wallet, right? They'd have to be able to log into the wallet and then move it. So like, you know, if, if you're going to set it that far out, um, and you're going to leave it like that, you might want to, in your residence, have some sort of like instructions of like, all right, well, I, you know, I have, I have a cold card with, with aunt Pam and I've got, I've got so-and-so. And so maybe then they can get access to it. So keep in mind, yeah, something happens to you. They will not be giving up the, the encrypted file to the beneficiary until the date that was designated but you can get some combination of the keys that exist. So you have two hardware devices that could be anything and a, a tap signer and any two of those keys basically supersedes all of that. You can move all of the funds as long as you have two of the keys. Thank you. That makes sense. I appreciate it. No worries. So I, I think I'm not, but like on that point, right, the thing that's preventing Nunchuck from handing their piece to your beneficiary until the timeout is expired is a policy control by Nunchuck. 
right? Like they're not using yeah. an on-chain time lock. So they're making a business decision that we don't hand over your inheritance material until the time that you've pre-designated. But like, that's not something that's enforced by Bitcoin consensus. That's enforced by a policy decision at Nunchuck. Yes, exactly. At, at the current time anyways. Yeah. So that's, that's how it currently operates. If, um, if they decide that, okay, there's enough support for this kind of in the ecosystem, or there's enough demand for on-chain time lock, then that could change. And anybody that's currently using the policy version of it could perhaps change it to the on-chain time log version of it. Um, but that kind of remains to be seen as to, you know, what people prefer and, and what their support for everywhere else. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's fully a policy decision. So the decision to either release the, the encrypted file or not, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like for the person who was asking about OpVault earlier, the reason why it came up is we were talking about OpVault the other night at BitDevs and, um, the big difference between doing a policy-based vault like what Nunchuck does and doing an on-chain uh, time lock with like a check sequence verify, which is like a relative time lock, is if you do a relative time lock on-chain, the timer starts as soon as those UTXOs are created. So if you have like a two-year relative time lock on your um, on your UTXOs, then if you get to one year and 11 months and you're still alive, you have to respend everything in your wallet to like reset the timer. And the nice thing about doing vaults with like some off-chain server is that you can say something like, okay, as soon as we activate the inheritance process, you know, a six month timer starts then, right? And like my, my UTXOs haven't moved in five years, but we're going to start the timer once my beneficiaries try to claim their inheritance, and then the timer starts. And the problem is that you can't really enforce that on chain with the time locks that we have. So you have to have some server running somewhere, which is like what Nunchuck provides or what something like Revault would provide for an institutional custody situation. So OpVault is a soft fork proposal that would give you an opcode that lets you do the kind of um, start the timer whenever you want kind of vault situation, but with no third-party servers, it's all enforced on-chain through consensus rules. So like right now you have this trade-off of either you have like a server or a service provider that provides a little bit of like extra smarts off-chain, or you have to go with on-chain time locks that you then have to re-roll every however long and op vault is a proposal that that kind of gives you both hey john i just got one quick quick question um you keep talking about seed signer uh ben is is seed signer something that um has to be used in this process and then also um uh just as a something to think about not not to answer any question about is what happens with this process if probate is involved is something that just came to mind uh, so uh, you're, you're referring to tap signer. So yeah, tap signer um, is required as the inheritance key currently. And again, um, that's kind of due to the fact how the tap signer functions in the, in the backup. So there is, because the backup consists of a encrypted file and a decryption key. Um, so that's the inheritance key that is required there, which is great because that's like, a very cheap option, right? Like the, the, the tap signer is 
quite affordable um, in terms of, of hardware because it's simply just a card. Um, and, but in terms of the other keys, it's whatever you want. You could have three tap signers for ease of use, or you could use cold cards or jades or this, the actual, the seed signer, um, you know, that's an option as well. Keystone. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of different options for those other keys there, but yeah, tap signer as the inheritance key currently is, is how you do this thing. Um, tell me, tell me about, uh, sorry, the, the probate thing. I'm not super familiar with probate. Can you explain that to me a little bit? Just the court gets involved with probate and then, you know, things are not supposed to move at all. It's kind of illegal to move things um, once something is under probate. So, and that's something for a different, this is a different time. I, I know we, we've got to move on with this, with this thing. I just threw that out there because it just made me think of, geez, what happens if there's probate? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's kind of the question of, geez, what happens if there's censorship resistant global money too? <laughs> it's, it's that uh, the world has to grapple with the fact that this exists. For sure. Okay. I know we probably have additional questions. Uh, this is a super important and uh, deep topic to cover. Thanks for all the input from everyone so far. Uh, we are going to pivot over to Swan Private Macro Friday. Uh, before we do that, Ben, would love to have any final thoughts. Uh, would love for you to mention why are we bullish on uh, anything else you want to cover. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'll just say if if uh, you're curious about kind of seeing how this works in practice, then um, in the nest, there is uh, a link to a tweet I made for the video. Um, if you see fit, feel free to give it a retweet. It's always nice giving these things a bump so that people can do some more learning. Um, uh, oh, yeah. And then we have why are we bullish uh, tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time? Uh, and I've got uh, Pleb Music, a.k.a. Max DeMarco. He makes incredible films. He's going to be on. Uh, I've got uh, Jaime uh, Garcia coming on. And then I've got uh, Madex, a.k.a. Spaceball. Awesome, awesome Bitcoin artist. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to be hanging out tonight at 6. So uh, grab a beverage and come join. Should be a good time. What's better than that on a Friday night? So, yes, everyone take a look at Why Are We Bullish? And Ben, you know you're always welcome at any time. So would love to have you on to talk about this topic again or, or any other topics in the future. Thanks for having me, man. That was great. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, with that, um, we are going to pivot into Swan Private Macro Friday. Uh, real quick, I will just mention you're listening to Cafe Bitcoin hosted by Swan Bitcoin, uh, daily Twitter spaces, podcast for all things Bitcoin, where some of the smartest minds in the industry prefer to hang out. Um, okay, given that it is 1130, I will say let's pivot into macro. And I believe we have a clip that we are going to play. It is two or three minutes long. So just be aware of that. Uh, but we think it's pretty important. Uh, it's been making the rounds on Twitter, so we would like to play it. Inflation has peaked. The biggest increase in last month and has remained is the renter equivalent number in the data, which was 0.8 positive. In reality, that was 0.34 negative. The lag in the housing data is just is okay. completely distorting inflation. And since rents are falling, market rents are falling month to month, not year over year, month to month, they're going this way. 
you will see a negative number there and it will look like energy. It'll come all the way down. So inflation will come down. And, and people who talk about keep raising rates, I hear these guys on your morning show, I want to strangle them. Volcker didn't have a $32 trillion deficit. So here's the actual interest number. The federal government spent the following amount of money the last four years on interest expense. In 2019, $375 billion, then $345, then $352, and last year $475 billion. So here were the average interest rates those years. They were 0 0.5 in 2020, 0 0.1 in 2021, 2021. That's the average, these are LIBOR, SOFA rates. In 22, they were 1.9%. This year, they'll be four and a half, five percent Five percent of 30 trillion. We'll be up to a trillion dollars. A trillion plus dollars. On interest. And on interest, and that's, that's, so the budget that the White House put out has a $400 billion number that didn't, actually, they didn't update it for today's interest rates. This is their November number out of the White House, which is where they put the 1.7 trillion, the, the fiscal, this fiscal spending. So what he faces, if he keeps going up, you have the Weimar Republic. He has to keep printing dollars to pay interest on the deficit. And you wind up printing and printing and putting tremendous pressure now on all ends of the curve, right? So that will really slow the economy if, if the tenure goes to five because this thing gets out of control. And who's going to buy our paper? And we've pissed off the Chinese. They're not going to be buying our paper. And most countries are pulling back to their borders now with deglobalization. The banks will support themselves. So he risks, this if he keeps going, these academics in Washington, he risks the entire financial stability of the system. You have the IMF and the World Bank telling you to stop raising rates. Because what we do in our little holes in Washington with our Federal Reserve Banks impacts the entire globe's economy. And it's not like it's strong in Europe. But, but so isn't this, they can't afford higher rates. But Barry, worse off than we maybe, are. Maybe this is what we need. But because, it's coming your but, way. Okay, so rate, if rates go way. back down, then we'll say, hey, everything's fine. So we if he keep... pulls this off, which he has a good shot of doing, actually, of having a soft landing if he stops, he can have a, a, a mild recession is fine. I mean, it'll be fine. You don't destroy all these manufacturing jobs. We, we bring back, we onshore, we, we, get, we, we, we fix supply chains. He'll be, he'll be good. I'd be bullish. If we keep this up, and obviously the political but no, gridlock, but the, don't focus on things that matter in Washington, I would be... If rates are higher, maybe we'll stop. That's what I'm saying. If, if we go right back to where you want to go, no, then we'll be I, like, I, okay, I, I well, just, it's not a trillion in interest. We're back down to $300 billion in interest expense. But if, if we really are spending a trillion every year... We should have year, rates, but 2.5% low rate. What, how do we finally... What, how can we spend on other things if our debt service is, is so high? And it's, if it no, goes we, to $35 trillion, a plan to reduce the long-term deficit. But here, here's... All right, so I should have given the context there, but I'm sure uh, a lot of you figured it out. That was a clip from CNBC. Uh, Joe Kernan is the CNBC anchor you heard. The other person speaking was their guest. That is Barry Sternlich. Uh, he is uh, he's a billionaire. He runs what is Starwood Capital Group. That's an investment firm. They have over uh, probably over $50 billion in assets. Um, I will make a few comments here, but then I want to turn it over to, to Sam and others to get their takes. Um, I think we should take this with a grain of salt to a certain extent. Um, and Carl Quintanilla of CNBC highlighted two things when he posted this clip. First was Elon Musk uh, apparently said somewhere, the Fed is at risk of crushing the value of all equities, quite a serious danger. And then he posted uh, the, the clip with Barry Sternlich. And he said, if Powell keeps hiking rates, he risks the entire financial stability of the global economic system, plus all the comments that you guys heard. Why I think those types of things need to be 
taken with a grain of salt is because we have to think about what are the incentives of, of the people who are making these statements. If you run an investment firm with billions of dollars of assets under management, you much more prefer a 2020, 2021 type of environment where everything is pumping. Uh, people are forced into investments because they're saying, oh my gosh, I'm an idiot for just holding on to cash. I've got to plow my money into XYZ investment product. Uh, you have much more difficult conversations with your clients in 2022 when everything you've invested in is down, you know, who knows, at least 10, 20, 30, 50% in some cases. So I think it needs to be taken with a massive grain of salt. That's the first thing I'll say. But I do think he's highlighting something that Bitcoiners have talked about for a while, which is the path of uh, U.S. debt and interest expense is quite unsustainable. And it's not even just the U.S. You can look at what's happening in some other countries. Um, Sam has done some really good work on what's happened in Japan, and it might be a sign of things to come for other heavily indebted countries. And he's just highlighting this idea that at rates needing to go higher or even, you know, not even much higher than where they are now, interest expense in the U.S. will quickly become the biggest thing that we're spending money on. And we won't actually get debt to GDP down, um, which needs to happen at some point, um, one would think. So those are kind of my opening reactions to that clip, but would love to hear what Sam, Terrence and others have to say about it. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Um, John, I think you just summed it up perfectly, man. I'm not going to lie. Like, I liked how you brought up their incentives. So I think it's a really important. And I didn't really appreciate, like, the sensationalism with, like, I'm mentioning Weimar. Like, I, you know, I just don't see that happening anytime soon. It seems like he only mentioned that because, like you said, to help his own books. Um, and I think the two things are different between Elon and Barry. I mean, they're talking about, like, Elon's talking about how, hiking rates hurts like companies like him who are highly indebted and dependent on it. But in terms of crushing the value of all equities, I think the more serious danger is the Fed running off its balance sheet and reducing the liquidity in the system and the QT um, that's been offset by the treasury kind of draining their treasury general account. But that's kind of going to be done soon. And, you know, interest rates rising, I think is gets all of the news and everything. But to me, like, looking at the balance sheet and liquidity in and liquidity in the system is even more important to risk assets in general. Um, and so I, I kind of agree. He just mentions a lot of things. Bitcoiners mentions like James Lavis had done great work looking at the debt spiral and interest rates, uh, falling tax receipts and how the math doesn't make sense. He brings up the Triffin dilemma. Um, he brings up the uh, owner's equivalent rent and how there's lags in these weightings of the CPI. And all of those are good points. Um, I just think you, like you said, you need to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, I definitely think the Weimar Republic comment is a bit hyperbolic. Um, it might be sensationalist, you know, because he's trying to get people riled up. So I think I think we need to be mindful of that. Um, Terrence or anyone else, you want to offer some reactions to that clip? Uh, yeah, sure. So on Weimar, uh, we should be seeing that in Europe with the euro and when uh, Japan first, because they're much worse off than us, than the U.S. in terms of demographics, uh, GDP, um, risk-taking kind of culture, confidence, and just debt to GDP in Japan is super atrocious, right? So it seems like 
um, calamity, financial catastrophes should first hit Japan and Europe years before, if not decades before it hits the U.S. as uh, Bitcoin and the U.S. dollar just start taking over everything. Um, number one. Number two, the U.S. government, as a reminder, can still print 30-year treasuries for 3.63%. This is off Bloomberg. I'll post it in the nest, or sorry, post it in the chat. Um, so the market is clearly not that worried if it's letting the U.S. Uh, borrow for 30 years at 3.63%. That is the market rate, notwithstanding some Fed buying, but um, notwithstanding all the scare tactics and trash talking and just whatever fear mongering, I think um, we need, do need to look at incentives. This guy is obviously very long risk assets. I'm done speaking. So with that in mind, because uh, I think you bring up something interesting there, Terrence, you know, yields can be of a certain level that that can be accomplished, but it comes at, at certain costs. So maybe, Sam, this is a good place to pivot into some of the writing you've done recently about what has happened with Japan in the, fa in the past few weeks. Um, and if that's a sign of things to come for other heavily indebted governments whose central banks are kind of forced into um, not necessarily yield curve control, but making sure yields don't get above uh, certain levels if, if it's not outright yield curve control. Yeah, well, I'll just kind of summarize, you know, what's been happening with the Bank of Japan over the last couple of weeks, which I think is one of the most important things happening in the markets. Um, basically, you saw it come under pressure from short sellers when it increased the yield curve control limit from 0.25% to 0.5% back in December. And since then, you've seen short sellers really come after them because uh, yield curve control is a really fickle beast. And um, it's entirely dependent on the credibility of the central bank to follow through with its stated policy that they will buy an unlimited amount of bonds once it hits their predetermined limit. And when they doubled the limit back in December, now short sellers are thinking, what's to stop the BOJ from suddenly doubling the limit again? All right. So they're betting that the, the rates on the JGBs are going to go up and they're going to make money. And so they've been piling in um, to this trade of shorting JGBs, especially going into this last Wednesday's meeting. Uh, the BOJ decided not to raise its yield curve control limit, which really uh, led to these short sellers getting cleaned out. But they won the battle against these short sellers, but not the war. And to win that battle, they had to print a ton of money. I mean, they, they basically broke all kinds of records, but all the wrong kinds of records because they basically purchased 4.6 trillion yen worth of JGBs in one single day. And then the very next day, they broke that record again when they bought 5 trillion. And they ended up buying over 13 trillion of yen um, of JGBs in a span of four trading days. So over $100 billion worth of bond purchases, all with printed money and all in a matter of days uh, to defend this uh, self-imposed limit on their bond yields. And the reason they're doing this is because their debt to GDP is so high compared to all these other ones. So even if the interest goes up a little bit, uh, that, that the debt interest payments become unaffordable. And so, you know, yield curve control is something where it's really difficult to end. It's, it's like a, uh, they're holding a beach ball underwater. And when they let the pressure off, the beach ball breaks the surface and then flies upwards. And um, right now they're trying to defend it. And we'll see how much money they have to spend because these short sellers aren't done. Uh, they'll, they'll come back when they, they smell this weakness 
Um, and is that the end game for all these central banks um, over a long enough period of time? They're not as far gone as Japan, but they all kind of went the path of Japan um, in the COVID pandemic when they really just ramped up their bond buying programs to levels that we've never seen before outside of Japan. So um, that's the question. And I think like gold and hard money, like Bitcoin um, is kind of sniffing out this, right? Investors are kind of like, oh, do I need insurance against this broader fiat monetary system that seems to be just accumulating debt at rapid, at a rapid rate at these really high levels? You know, how are they going to pay this off? And, and investors start to think about, oh, how do I hedge this? And um, I think you see that in the gold performance. And I just think you're starting to see that in the Bitcoin performance as well, specifically over the last, you know, since 2020, basically, uh, Bitcoin still outperformed a lot of asset classes. Um, so that's kind of how I see that the Japan thing. I do see it as kind of a canary in the coal mine type of situation. That's great. Appreciate that summary, Sam. I think that was really good. So, you know, big takeaway for me, just to reiterate some of the things that Sam went into, when you get to a point where, whether it's Japan and you have debt to GDP at 225% or the U.S. is around 120 to 130% of GDP. And as we discussed last week, I'll just remind everyone, the CBO, the U.S.'s own Congressional Budget Office, um, they are forecasting that U.S. debt to GDP is going to get to 185% by the year 2052, 30 years from now. So when that's happening, you don't often have a central bank that can just stand by and say, okay, we're going to back out of the market here. We're going to let yields do whatever they do on our government debt while we have debt to GDP at you know over 150%, let's just say. So they can, for certain periods of time, say, we're going to let our balance sheet roll off a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. But over the long term, this is not something that they can just step away from. And I think the BOJ is kind of proving that to be the case right now. Anyone want to chime in on this or any other macro topics that they want to raise at this time? I have, I have something. Um, I, you know, we've kind of, I think, skewed bearish um, on this program, maybe the last couple of months. And I heard a podcast on for our forward guidance with uh, Milton Berg, who's worked with Stanley Druckenmiller and George Soros. And he basically said that the recessions already happened and he was quite bullish. And I think it's important to kind of share different uh, views that kind of challenge maybe the consensus, including maybe what we think here. And um, he had a really interesting podcast. So I recommend people check it out. His, his view was basically that stocks, if you look at it, essentially bottomed in June. And um, there's a lot of capitulation and a lot of fast movements downward back in early June. And if you look at like broader indexes, like the Russell 2000 or the mid caps, they really did bottom in June. I mean, they kind of retested to the lows back in early October, um, but they really, they had fast capitulation moves in early June and they've been kind of just retested that once and then kept going upwards, showing resiliency in the face of all these rate hikes. And he's, he mentioned that when they bottomed back in June, it happened, it coincided with the Fed's first 75 bips raise. And um, he thinks that was really important a marking point 
And um, I just found it really interesting, right? So like if you look at Bitcoin too, like Bitcoin sold off really rapidly around June 2. I mean, you had Luna um, and then BlockFi, Three Arrows Capital, and then it kind of had its own um, endogenous problems with like FTX and fraud that kind of made it decouple and go down lower than a lot of these other broader indexes like stocks and, and other asset classes. Um, but now it's kind of catching up. And so it's an interesting point of view because if you look at the charts, it kind of backs it. Um, if you just look at the June lows compared to maybe the early fall lows of some of these asset classes. And um, I just wanted to get some of your guys' thoughts on that because I found it fascinating. Doesn't the doesn't the, the the interest rate hikes aren't they a lagging indicator because it takes a while for you know the effects of those rate hikes to really hit the economy because the they don't affect the the current um, you know uh, current lending because it's usually lending is locked in I mean most lending corporate lending is kind of locked in for several years at least it's it's when the it's when those those uh, bonds start to um, expire and then have to be, you know, uh, capital has to be reacquired that you start to see the real effects of the real lingering effects of those kinds of rate hikes. So wouldn't that be something that that would be counter to what um, you just proposed? Uh, yeah. And, you know, this isn't my proposal. I, I, I sympathize with that, Peter, that viewpoint. Um, I think I think what he's saying is maybe that this is a the stock market in general is forward looking and maybe saw through some of these rate hikes and that it's just stronger in general. If you look at like John's looked at like the maturities of some of these you know uh, junk bonds that some of these companies have. I know John, you could probably speak to them, but they have more runway uh, than people maybe think. Um, and so this thing could kind of drawn out. So I think what Milton was kind of saying is that you know we could have more. Uh, you know, tailwinds to risk assets, at least in the short and medium term. And everyone's like yelling recession and, and depression in Q1, Q2. And this could kind of go on further because to me, I look at the market and the sentiment and the most painful trade right now would be if everything just ripped up higher, I think. I think that's what people would be like totally caught off guard. And that's what the market likes to do. And so I'm just giving some airtime to this, this view because, um, you know, I, I sympathize with the opposite view. I, I agree. I think it takes time for interest rates to work through the economy. So, and so I think you're just so, starting to see it. Yeah. So, Sam, does this become a question of who's right, the bond market or the stock market? Is that kind of what we're looking at here? Uh, I don't know if you could frame it like that. I mean, yeah, they, they're kind of showing a little bit different things. The 10 years kind of just been hanging out because investors are piling in, maybe expecting um, a recession to come in the future and then the Fed to start cutting rates and the stock market's been resilient. I think what Milton was trying to say is that there was already a decent amount of pain back in June in the stock market. It's kind of coming off those bottoms back then. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of, I, I would just recommend checking out the podcast just to challenge your views is, is more kind of why I brought it up because Peter, I, I kind of sympathize with, with what you're saying, but I think it's important to challenge it. Puppy, what's up? Hey, guys. Always good to see you. Uh, you know, I love the, the Macro Fridays. Get to hang out with all the big brains on here. Uh, yeah, question on Sam or anyone. Um, I, I, first, I, I don't see I, I'm how, you know, you're talking about the stocks and the bonds. 
Um, I'm really interested in, in this real estate market right now. And when you're seeing these rates, man, that had just, you know, more than doubled in a year I, I, and aren't slowing down, um, still seem to be going up. I, how long does it take for all of this to, to sort of flush through the system? Because I'm telling you right now, you know, I'm, I, you know, I've been in my neighborhood 20 years. Um, you know, house prices have tripled, um, even quadrupled in some cases. And you're looking at these rates, you know, in 2002, when I bought, the rates were at 7%. The nice thing I was able to ride that down to under 3% in, in 2020. But now, man, you're looking at, at a generation trying to come into the housing market where the prices have tripled and the rates are going up. I just don't know how that's going to filter out. Uh, I don't know what you guys thoughts are on the real estate market tied into all of this in macro. Yeah, I think I think this whole conversation highlights uh, a difference. We could we could be talking about uh, asset prices, or we could be talking about what's actually going on in terms of economic activity. And I think the difference is is pretty massive. So I would my understanding of the podcast that Sam described, I think that was more about asset prices. Um, or, or maybe not, Sam. You can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. But hundred uh, percent. Okay. Okay. Cool. I think that is a pretty big difference because I believe a hundred percent there is a lagged effect of monetary policy on economic activity for sure. So, for example, Pubby brings up uh, housing and real estate. I think that's the clearest example of higher interest rates leading to less activity in broader housing, whether it is houses being sold. Uh, construction activity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we have to remember asset prices are forward looking and they're always going to try to sniff out changes in monetary policy and liquidity. And I think Bitcoin tries to do that faster than any asset out there. So I think it's, and th this is kind of a huge question going forward that uh, I'm not sure exactly where I stand on it, but I think a big question is what if we do have kind of a mild recession later this year. And remember, that's in terms of like economic activity, GDP, other indicators, employment, etc. That may happen. But if at the same time, it becomes clear that the Fed is not hiking anymore, and maybe they're even starting to talk about 25 basis point rate cuts, it's possible. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's possible. You might get one of these environments where Everyone says, yeah, economic activity is slowing due to all these, these lagged effects of monetary policy, but monetary policy is about to switch in the other direction. So maybe stocks end up rallying a bit and Bitcoin rallies trying to um, look in advance of monetary policy changing. I don't think any of that makes sense, <laughs> quite frankly. I just want to throw that out there. I think it's a function of the fact that we do have a centrally planned monetary policy. Um, I, I think that obviously as a Bitcoiner, I think that is just a flawed system from the get go, but it is the system we have. So I just wanted to highlight this big difference between, you know, are we talking about asset prices or are we talking about economic activity? Well, it's also, yeah, are think, we talking about, yeah. it's, sorry, Sam, it's also, are we talking about reality? The market seems to think that Powell is going to do a 25 basis point uh, raise, which this makes no sense if 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 the if the market is like yeah he's still raising why is it I don't know it just doesn't make any sense to me there's 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 a disconnect somewhere. I mean, are they raising rates because inflation seems to be persisting, and 
that's not surprising after the massive money printing and QE and rate cutting since 2008, right? Since Lehman, and especially after uh, COVID lockdowns in April 2020, just massive helicopter money. So of course, asset prices went way up, risk assets, of course, um, housing tripled in some cases, and you need um, to control inflation. And while the job numbers look okay and uh, labor participation looks okay, they're just going to keep rates uh, higher longer, right? And um, risk assets were are way overvalued, and they need to be uh, priced again. Risk needs to be priced again. So that's kind of what's happening from my viewpoint. And yeah, and I would just throw out there: the Fed may maybe they'll hike another twenty-five. Like maybe they'll do another two twenty-five. So I, I believe last I checked, that's what the market is expecting: another two twenty-five basis point rate hikes, and then a pause from there. I would throw this in the category of uh, the Fed matters to a certain extent, but a lot of this is also what is the market pricing and that's going to happen after that. So, you know, you look at what rates have done in the past few months and they've fallen pretty, pretty substantially. Uh, you know, we had the 10 year above 4% at one point um, and now, now it's significantly lower, closer to 3.5%. So I think the market is just trying to be forward looking and price in what's going to happen, you know, six months out, 12 months out, um, which can be at odds with what the Fed is saying, which I think is something we've seen in the past for sure. All right. So we actually have three minutes until the hour here, which uh, is crazy to me because this all went so quickly. Um, Sam or Terrence or anyone, do you have any quick topics that you guys wanted to raise? If not, we can move it into closing comments. I'm good. Okay, cool. Let's, um, let's do closing comments. Sam, if you had something in particular, would love to hear it. Um, I don't want to override whatever you were going to share. If not, um, I thought you did some really interesting work on just listing out what are some of the reasons that have likely contributed to Bitcoin's uh, price rise to start the year. This is obviously uh, not a science. Um, any, I, I've seen this in traditional markets all the time. Something happens, price moves by X percent. Different people have different explanations for why it happened. Uh, no one has a monopoly on those explanations, but I think it's an important exercise to at least attempt to explain it. So, Sam, would love for you to go through that if you didn't have something else you wanted to go through. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, Bitcoin's been on a tear to start the year. Um, always, this is where speculation comes into play, just looking at potential drivers of the recent price action. I think there's a lot of worry and fear around the the crypto credit contagion. And the recent bankruptcy filing of Genesis kind of um, at least provided at least some, um, not closure, but maybe uh, some more certainty around that situation where people aren't as worried about the Bitcoin and the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust hitting the market. Um, investor, investor fears around that crypto credit contagion seem to be abating. And, and they're positioning themselves now like the worst is maybe behind us. Uh, that can change, obviously, with anything like anything with Binance or any kind of bigger new story that we don't know about coming to light, but I think a lot of investors are maybe positioning themselves that way. 
Um, the other thing is just we've had more favorable liquidity conditions for risk assets really since October. Um, Dr. Jeff Ross brought up the net liquidity effect, and so has Arthur Hayes and others. Um, and it's really kind of offset some of the effects of the Fed's QT program over the last couple of months. And that's been a buoy for risk assets in general. You have the dollar weakening, you had bond yields falling considerably in, in Q4, which also served as a tailwind for asset prices. You had uh, CPI inflation rolling over for six consecutive months, uh, coupled with more dovish speak from the Fed, ECB, and Bank of Canada recently over the last couple of weeks, all hinting at either slowing um, the amount of their rates or, or pausing them entirely. Um, and so in, investors are expecting a pause to the rate hike soon and reading it more as a sign that this is near the top of this hiking cycle, potentially. Um, and then Bitcoin was just oversold. I mean, straight up, there's a bunch of frauds, credit contagion that plagued the industry and, and Bitcoin's price was impacted by that. Um, back in like last week, Bitcoin's um, relative strength index, which is just a measure of price momentum, was at its most oversold since early 2021 indicating kind of an increased likelihood of a trend reversal in the price. Um, and then it was just a period of really low volatility. And there's a ton of accumulation occurring at these levels around 16K, 70K. If you just look at UTXOs created around those price on, around those prices, there was just a ton of movement going on. Um, and so all of those combinations, I just look at it really broadly combined, could be considered con uh, you know, contributing to this recent price action. Um, and, and who knows like which one's the most one or what, but I, I just think all of those things combined, um, uh, painted like a, a, created a really potent environment for Bitcoin to kind of bounce off those lows. That's a fantastic summary. Thank you, Sam. Pubby, let's go to you and then we'll wrap. Yeah, look, are we, are we all going to pretend that for six months that yellow, um, yellow wasn't calling out the prophecy for December 23rd, because that's what he did, man. He never stopped believing. He's running the don't stop believing spaces. And boom, he just nails the button. No, seriously though. I think what I think what Sam seriously. hit on <laughs> Sam, I think hit on that contagion. When you had a you know, things gotta take some time to flush out of the system. And we went through a year, you know, Luna, right? All the stuff with FTX, right? BlockFi, everything caught up in there, Celsius. Um, yeah, I know some people got they finally realized what not your keys, not your coin meant. And uh, you had a mass exodus. People are realizing, hey, maybe these, maybe these places don't have all the Bitcoin. And I, and I think that's a, that is one of the, it may not be the most important, but I think that was one of the driving factors is the last part of this year was people saying, man, I better hold on to some of this. And you may have exchanges saying, my God, we only, because we look, we know they rehypothecate. And look, maybe they said, maybe we need more than 10% on our book. And they had to buy more to shore up what they've got going. I don't know. Uh, all tongue in cheek, Leo and the prophecy, but I, I, yeah, I think Sam nailed it with his uh, explanation. Fantastic. We will call it there. That is a wrap. So thank you all for joining. Uh, thanks to the speakers for speaking. We covered a lot in today's show. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, I will of course tell you all to get on the mission and do your part in advancing Bitcoin adoption, which can, of course, mean many different things to different people. And this is obviously a Twitter space, but you can find this as a podcast where you typically listen to your podcast, Fountain, Spotify, Apple, etc. Uh, and with that, I'll call it a wrap. Enjoy the weekend, everybody.